Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. I'm here with Brian Kotick. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jan. I think our listeners are going to be very surprised to hear a different voice on the podcast. (laughs) I know, I know. Uh, This came as a surprise to me, uh, too. (laughs) But it's it's great to be here. Yes, um, for our listeners... You probably noticed that we took a rather long hiatus in the summer, and that was due to everyone's scheduling conflicts and personal reasons, etc. But we have a great opportunity. We have the man behind the mask is now coming to the forefront and joining us on the microphone. Jan Kunster, who's been editing every single episode since the very beginning of this podcast. You're now going to join us as a host and take us through the rest of the season. Oh, what what uh, what an honor. I, uh, I, th- I think I was in... On on the one hundred one hundredth episode. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, last last year. But th- this is a premiere. Like I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I okay. Let me let me let me do this. I always wanted to do this. Um. So, um, where in the world are you, Brian? And uh, <laughs> where where are the others? I am in London. I just got back from dubai for about 10 days for a trial it was a grueling Mm -hmm. grueling task but now you have me in london um joel and sadia are also running around this country um but we can't peg them down which is why we couldn't get them on the microphone but yeah so and and where are you i'm in london as well at home um working from home today um which uh might be our topic Yes. Discussion later. <laughs> Look at um, you. You're already segueing perfectly. <laughs> I, I've learned from the best. Uh, <laughs> let's put it that way. Okay. Um, um, and what do we have, uh, Brian, for our uh, interview, for our, for our substantive segment? Yeah. So substantive segment, we have an interview with Andrew Fulton, Casey, and Manuel Casas, both at 20 Essex, to discuss the saga um, of a saga of a case regarding um, the it's the Guaido board of the Central Bank of Venezuela against the judgment of the Court of Appeal in the Venezuelan gold dispute. So this mm-hmm. this dispute arose out of an LCIA arbitration, and actually there was just one discrete issue that was referred to the English courts, and that one discrete issue, mm-hmm. which is namely about the recognition of a foreign leader mm-hmm. and the actions of a foreign leader in the mm-hmm. UK. Um, has gone up and down the ladder of English courts. And Andrew and Manuel have been um, on the ground for this uh, for this case. And so they kind as of take counsel. us through as counsel. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they take us through um, the recent Court of Appeals decision that um, was handed down, which I think is going to be appealed again to the Supreme Court. But I think we were waiting to see if that happened at the time of the interview. So I leave everyone to listen to it. It's really interesting. It crosses... It is it, it is a commercial arbitration mm-hmm. case relating to um the re- relating relating to a gold reserve, but mm-hmm. um, we get into issues that are kind of public international law issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I think it'll touch on everyone's interests. Oh, great! I uh, I'm looking I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it was and, a good interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned um I I haven't heard it yet, but I'm 
I'm, I'll edit it um, <laughs> <laughs> tonight. <laughs> and uh, for happy fun time, I I know we should be talking about the latest battle um, between between employers and employees. I think I think the general, at least in the UK, I think general um, now push uh, in the industry is to get everyone back to the office, but we've all got used to a certain degree of flexibility uh, after COVID. So I know you you said there's a bill in the making in the uh, parliament. Yeah, there's a draft bill uh, in parliament. So we'll be discussing, it's the Employment Relations Flexible Working Bill uh, in the UK. So this is specific to the UK, but we'll make it much broader to um, kind of everyone whether this push to bring everyone back in the office is fair, what are your rights, and can your rights be arbitrated, uh, <laughs> at least in the okay. UK. So that'll be our happy fun time, and hopefully it's more happy than unhappy. Great, great. Let's, uh, what, what do you say? Let's dive right in. Let's let's get started. <laughs> All of the above, yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right, we have a very interesting interview today. We have Andrew Fulton Casey and Manuel Casas, both from 20 Essex Chambers. And we had a case, a court of appeal case, just getting handed down that uh, we wanted you guys to come on and give a bit of light and also background to the dispute that's ongoing. Uh, although this case that we're going to be talking about is in the Court of Appeals in the in the United Kingdom or in England and Wales, we wanted to raise this issue because it has, a, first of all, it has a genesis in arbitration and LCIA arbitration, but also because it has, um, it deals with a lot of fundamental issues that can affect both commercial and investment arbitration and the recognition of foreign acts and uh, foreign governments. Um, the w- welcome, first of all, to the both of you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Happy to be here again. So in doing my research, uh, in reading the Court of Appeals decision and also going back to its lead up to this decision, there was there's a lot of background and a lot of things to cover. And we don't have a lot of time, but I think what's most important for our listeners will be to get kind of their head around the facts and circumstances that led um, to this ultimate dispute. Um, Manuel, this takes place in Venezuela, a place where you hail from. I was wondering if you could just give a brief background of kind of what happened with the government of Venezuela and the Central Bank of Venezuela and kind of paint the picture of where we are uh, in this case. Sure, Brian. And Venezuela is a complicated place. And as you mentioned, this is a complicated issue. So I'll give you the two minute version. OK. Uh, es- essentially, uh, everyone knows uh, Chavez was president of Venezuela. He was succeeded by Nicolas Maduro, his hand-chosen successor, he won elections in 2013, and then again he won re-election in May 2018. Uh, those elections are considered by a series of countries to have been irregular, uh, fraudulent, you could say. Arising from that, uh, before that, his re-election, the opposition had won a majority in the Venezuelan parliament. And therefore, in January 2019, when Maduro was swearing himself in for his re-election, the opposition said, actually, we do not recognize the result of that election as fraudulent. Maduro is usurping the presidency. And then by a constitutional mechanism, 
the president of the National Assembly of the legislature uh, the, swore himself in as interim president of Venezuela. So you had this situation where you had competing claims to the to to exercise executive powers in the country. And throughout that process, Venezuela, of course, has assets abroad, and these assets include gold reserves both in the U.S. and in the U.K., which are the subject matter of this dispute, and also uh, refineries and other oil-producing assets abroad, which are worth a lot of money. And part of the uh, dynamic that played out was that the Guaido uh, presidency uh, appointed commissions and the special attorney general to protect assets and to handle disputes involving assets that were located abroad. And that includes, of course, the approximately $2 billion in monetary gold held by the Bank of England that belongs to the Republic of Venezuela, and also about $120 million in gold swap contracts, which were the subject matter of the LCIA arbitration that you mentioned. And that's a long story short. The ring course, and then in 2023, in January, through internal political dynamics within the Venezuelan opposition, a decision was taken to uh, seize having Mr. Guaido as the interim president, mm-hmm. and that was replaced by a different set of boards that would, for all practical purposes, carry out similar functions. It was an, uh, you could describe it as an internal reorganization, but it involved also the figure of the interim president that Mr. Guaido had been occupying for a few years to be abolished. Right. Well, that, uh, that's a, a very successful synthesis of the, of this entire dispute in, in two minutes. The um, So the LCIA arbitration was effectively stayed, right, in order to determine these issues of these competing governments. Well, it's never actually got running um, because um, the the immediate roadblock, which everyone I realized um, uh, was was going to prevent it from getting running, is that whilst there were two rival boards of the central bank, um, there was a dispute over who was entitled to appoint the arbitrator as part of the three man panel um, to conduct the LCIA arbitration, which Deutsche Bank had commenced. Uh, right. So you, you you rightly pointed out the LCIA angle. I mean, that was the angle that brought me into the case initially. I mean, I, I'm a commercial court and arbitration practitioner and Deutsche Bank had obtained a um, an order appointing a receiver to accept the cash payment that was due as a result of a terminated gold swap. And so because they didn't want to pay the wrong party, right. they had the court appoint a receiver to take custody of that cash, whilst the two rival boards of the BCV um, fought out between them uh, who was entitled to give instructions um, in relation to BCV assets. Uh, and so that was the initial arbitration context. It's never, it's never got running. Deutsche Bank has appointed their arbitrator, but there's never been uh, yet a, 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 an appointment by um, the, the BCV on the other side of the arbitration because the, the dispute as to who ultimately has the authority to do that hasn't yet been resolved. Uh, so it's never really got underway. Uh, and in a sense, the arbitration has only ever really been a vehicle for the receivership um, in order to achieve a regime in which the ring is held uh, pending the resolution of the dispute over authority. It's a very good analogy where the ring is held. 
Um, so this case goes up and down the courts. It goes up to the Supreme Court and then remitted down and then it went up to the Court of Appeal. And that's where we kind of are today in this decision that was handed down this year. Andrew, can you um, kind of encapsulate what the issues on appeal were and what the party's respective positions yes. were? Yes. Um- well, to, to set it up, I need to explain slightly about where we got to in the Supreme Court. Um, sure. the, 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 the issue in the Supreme Court on the act of state part of the case uh, was whether the foreign act of state doctrine, which prevents an English court from investigating the legality of uh, foreign executive acts, uh, extends to acts which are unlawful under their own law. We persuaded the Supreme Court uh, that Lord Sumption had been right in a case called Belhage in 2017 to say that the doctrine did extend to unlawful executive acts. Uh, but uh, we didn't manage to persuade the Supreme Court that the logic of that analysis required the English court to in- ignore entirely what any foreign court had said about that question of lawfulness. So the, the reasoning of the Supreme Court was that if a foreign executive act had been quashed by its mm-hmm. own courts, then it was a matter of English private international law rules uh, to decide whether or not that quashing decision ought to be recognised in England. Uh, and if it was recognised, then the consequence of that would be there wasn't a, an executive act to engage the, exec- the act of state doctrine in the first place because it would have been quashed. It would have been a nullity. And an English court, by recognising the foreign quashing decision, would uh, recognise the purported act as having been a nullity. Uh, And so that's where it was left in the Supreme Court. So they remitted the case to the commercial court for a debate about whether these foreign quashing decisions of the uh, Maduro appointed judges of the Venezuelan Supreme Court ought to be recognised. Mrs. Justice Cockerell uh, uh, rejected the arguments that they should be recognised on on various grounds. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the Court of Appeal to um, have another look at whether or not um, she was right. And unusually, she had given permission, notwithstanding that she was confident in her analysis and thought the prospects of the Maduro board overturning her were virtually hopeless. But because she thought it was an important case uh, and the issues were novel, uh, right. she thought the Court of Appeal should have another look at it. So we, ha- we had the debate uh, in the Court of Appeal. Um, the main focus of the judgment is on the one voice part of the analysis. Um, and the one voice doctrine means that where the UK executive has declared a position as to who is the government or president of a foreign state, then the English courts have to follow that statement. Uh, and they're bound and in this to... case, there was such a declaration, right? Exactly. And so between 2019 and 2023, HMG had formally recognised Juan Guaido as being the interim president of Venezuela. And so mm-hmm. therefore, his acts of appointment of the board to the BCV were Venezuelan acts of state. Uh, but um, those acts had been quashed by the Venezuelan Supreme Court. Uh, and the question was whether it was inconsistent with the one voice doctrine for the English court to recognise those foreign judgments in circumstances where the judges of the STJ uh, took the polar opposite view to his majesty's government as to who the president was. The, the judges of the STJ considered that Maduro was still the president. Uh, and that Guaido was a, a usurper and uh, promoting this um, fundamental constitutional challenge and a, attack on upon the rule of law. And these judgments of the STJ are expressed in, in forthright terms about this threat um, to, um, to the Maduro regime. 
Right. Uh, and, uh, and our argument was essentially that precisely for that reason, it was inconsistent with English public policy and it would contradict the one voice principle um, if the English court was to recognise the decisions of a court which took the opposite view as to who the president even was. Right. And in the and Supreme Court. Sorry. No, for context for the listeners, SCJ is the Venezuelan Supreme Court. Hmm. Uh, and the acronyms. And can you just give a couple comments on the because we haven't talked about this yet, about the, it was when Maduro was transitioning out, right? Right before he transitioned out, he made these appointments. Is that correct? To the STJ? Or when did he make these appointments? Uh, the yes, he, he, he effectively packed the court um, shortly before the opposition parties took control of the National Assembly. Uh, and, and so there was a period um, prior to those newly elected deputies taking their seats in the National Assembly. Uh, and he took that opportunity to make a whole series of, of new appointments of judges. Right. And one of the one of the arguments that we had at first instance in 2022 uh, was that the Venezuelan STJ was itself not an independent court. And exactly. one of the facts we relied upon was the packing of the court by these Maduro appointed judges. Uh, and the judge um, didn't accept that part of our case. She didn't feel that we had sufficiently cogent evidence to, to show systemic lack of independence, okay. uh, although she did recognise that packing of the court as being cause for concern. Mm. But ultimately, we didn't need that part of the case because that there were various other reasons, including breaches of natural justice and the one voice principle, uh, which meant that there, the decisions of that court shouldn't be recognised in London. So on this sounds oddly like the United States is where the United States is heading, actually. Um, so the Venezuela is not an, an, on an island here. The so on appeal, we had a few uh, issues on appeal. Um, it was basically the application to vacate the hearing and stay the appeal, which I think we can leave aside for right now. But the um, the grounds that the judge held in the commercial court decision. Right. And that those were on appeal. Can you touch on? What those issues were in the, sure. in the latest. Well, there were there were there were three there were three main areas. Um, there was um, the the question of whether or not the Maduro board could rely upon any existing private international law rule to allow the recognition of these judgments. And the problem that they had is that the judgments were obtained in the absence of any of the parties concerned. Neither the Maduro board nor the Guaido board were before mm. the STJ when the STJ pronounced upon the validity of the appointments. Uh, and so they couldn't rely upon them as being in personam judgments. So they were driven to argue that they should be treated as somehow analogous uh, to an in rem judgment. Uh, and so there was quite a technical debate about whether um, the fact that these judgments of the constitutional chamber of the STJ had what's called erga omnes effect, uh, whether that was sufficient to assimilate them to an English style in rem judgment, right. such as one might have in relation to a ship or aircraft. Uh, and and the judge um, was, was satisfied that there was no such equivalence. Uh, and all that the STJ principle of of, um, of erga omnes really meant is that unlike uh, most decisions of uh, in, the, in the civil system, those decisions would create binding precedent and bind courts in other cases. Uh, so that was a slightly technical argument about the rules of private international law. Uh, then the second uh, ground was the one voice principle, where we were saying it was fundamentally inconsistent with the one voice doctrine for the English court to recognise judgments from a court who refused to recognise Mr Guaido as even the interim president. 
Uh, and then uh, the other uh, ground was natural justice, uh, which comes back to the point I made a moment ago, namely that there was no one before the STJ in order to argue for a contrary position. Uh, mm-hmm. And so one one of the fundamental principles about the recognition of foreign judgments is that they have to conform to an English conception of natural justice. Uh, that doesn't mean the procedure has to be identical to an English style procedure, but it has to be fundamentally fair. And the absence of notification and the denial of a right to be heard, uh, we said, was fundamentally inconsistent not only with with English foreign policy, but also it was a fundamental breach of the constitutional safeguard under Venezuelan law um, that's afforded to all parties, that they should have the right to be heard and the right to to a legal defence. So those were the the three areas Um, in the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal focused only on the one voice doctrine. They asked for that to be dealt with first. They saw that as really fundamental and Mm -hmm. likely to be the answer to the case. And because that they were satisfied that um, it would be inconsistent with the one voice doctrine to recognize these judgments, um, slightly disappointingly from an intellectual point of view, they, they, <laughs> declined, they declined to, um, to, to, to give a ruling on the, on the other parts of the case. Um, so that they, they just decided on the, on the narrow one voice point. And, and even then on the, on the narrow aspect of the one voice point, um, namely that there was no proper basis to, um, to interfere with the judge's factual assessment mm-hmm. um, as to the nature of these judgments, uh, whereby the whole question of who the president was, was was inextricable from any of the other lines of reasoning. And so it would be fundamentally inconsistent for the English court to give any effect to a judgment which was steeped um, in this question of Maduro being the president, as far mm-hmm. as the STJ was concerned, rather than Mr. Guaido, uh, who HMG recognised. I, if I can jump on. No, go ahead, Brian. No, 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 I had another question, so please. Uh, I, I actually, albeit it is intellectually dissatisfying that they avoided expressly dealing with the uh, natural justice part of the argument. In a way, I, I understand uh, the, the court's motivations for doing so. They would be in a situation where you have the court of appeal of one country effectively saying that the Supreme Court of another country has breached natural justice in a way that is so extreme that it leads to uh, it being impossible to recognize those judgments in the UK. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. a bit similar to, and the threshold, I think, it's similar to the denial of justice threshold in investment arbitration. And, And you can see generally international arbitral tribunals are wary of saying that they always say the standard is very high. And I think here the Court of Appeals said, you know, for reasons of comity, of tact, it's it's better if we can avoid saying that the Supreme Court of another jurisdiction has, has breached this. And if we have a cleaner argument on the basis of English law to decide this, right. uh, you can understand the reasoning behind it. Although, as a Venezuelan, I wouldn't have minded them to <laughs> delve into the natural justice argument, in part because these are... Um, I can, I think, objectively say these were very irregular proceedings. They were also dealt with extremely quickly in a court system that is not necessarily always speedy or selectively speedy, mm-hmm. uh, including the fact that there was, as Andrew mentioned, no notification to the interested parties, despite them being quite easy to find. And despite a regime that is quite generous in allowing even third-party intervention 
in matters of public importance, there was no right for the effect, directly affected parties to intervene. So uh, I'd say they're quite in the uh, quite peculiar, and it would have been good to have some analysis on that. That actually leads to my question, which is, I, I know the Supreme Court case, there was heavy reliance on the expert evidence. Um, is Was there the same amount of, was there the same expert evidence submitted in the Court of Appeal case, or because they were so focused on that one issue, which is limited to matters of English law, that they, that they didn't find a need to resort to or rely on similar evidence or did they just no, ex- expert expert evidence was really really important in the court of appeal there was no new okay. expert evidence but it was analysis of of the of the treatment of the expert evidence by okay. the commercial court judge um, mrs justice cockerell uh, and that was really important and it was it was um uh, tremendously helpful uh, and fortuitous that in the week before our appearance in the court of appeal the privy council had handed down uh, an important decision just clarifying the treatment of expert evidence on foreign law at appellate mm-hmm. level, uh, clarifying that um, in, in circumstances where the expert evidence is dealing with uh, uh, law that's in a foreign language and which isn't a common law tradition, uh, and so the experts are really valuable in informing the courts and so the judges cannot in those circumstances rely upon their own expertise and understanding Uh, in those circumstances the findings of fact on expert evidence of foreign law uh, are to be treated as other types of findings of fact and so similarly impregnable uh, in the court of appeal or um, at a second level appeal at the privy council or supreme court level um, uh, unless there can be shown to be some wholesale error by the by the judge right. in, the, in the treatment of the evidence and so that was very helpful for us because um, uh, we had a fantastic expert in the commercial court professor brewer carrias who in fact drafted quite a large part of the venezuelan constitution and has written countless books about it uh, and uh, and so he, he was an enormously authoritative expert who was able to explain how in his view the reasoning of the venezuelan stj in rejecting the act of appointment um, of um, Mr. Guaido was was all bound up with the question of their refusal to treat him as being the, the president and their refusal to recognise the um, the validity of the acts of the National Assembly of which mm. Mr. Guaido was then the president. Uh, and so that that that, that those findings at, at first instance level were fundamental to us in the Court of Appeal, uh, and that was that was really the primary basis upon which the Court of Appeal decided it. And that there wasn't there wasn't a proper basis to overturn the judge in her assessment of the of the facts and the, the Venezuelan expert evidence. There is one wrinkle that I just read in the digest, so correct me that I'm wrong, that they um, as of January 2023, HMG no longer recognized Guaido as the president of Venezuela. And they said that that rec- that that change in recognition did not affect um, their decision. Um is that is was that correct or was that, did that come up as far as it, it of- certainly it certainly came up it came up because first of all the other side was saying that in light of that change of position by HMG and the, the position on the ground politically in Venezuela mm-hmm. uh, the whole appeal should be adjourned uh, mm-hmm. and the, the hearing should be vacated. Uh, and the Court of Appeal rejected that because they said we're not looking at the position as it is now. We're right. considering whether the judge had been correct to uh, reject uh, the claim to recognition of these foreign judgments 
based upon the facts as they then were. Right. Um, if there's been a change of circumstance, then that needs to be debated at commercial court level um, to consider the implications of that. Uh, so they failed in their stay application. They tried to run a similar type of argument as a new and unpleaded ground of appeal um, to say that, uh, in fact, the one voice doctrine needs to be looked at, not as it was when Mr. Guaido was recognised as president, uh, but the position as it is now in which mm-hmm. he's no longer recognised. Uh, and uh, and the Court of Appeal, although recognising that it was procedurally irregular for them to have run that um, point for which they had no permission, rejected it anyway. Uh, but it's that then which is now the focus of um, of an application to the Supreme Court for permission to appeal to the Supreme Court for a second time um, wow. on, uh, among other things, this timing question. Uh, they, they want to say effectively um, that uh, where there has been a change in the recognition position uh, and Mr. Guaido is no longer recognised, there is no longer a conflict with the one mm. voice doctrine in recognising these judgments of the STJ. Uh, and um, they're, they're right to say it's a novel point that, that the question of, right. of the one voice doctrine as it applies to foreign judgments hasn't been um, uh, considered um, at Supreme Court level um, before. Um, but um, but we'll obviously be saying that the um, the logic of the Court of Appeals position is obviously right. So in parallel with this appeal to the Supreme Court, where does this case stand now? It's back to the commercial court. Well, no, not yet, because okay. the other side are trying to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, oh, so and, it will wait. Till and that. so I, I just I, I expect that until that, that application has been resolved, then uh, it isn't going anywhere. Mm. Because it's it's always been accepted uh, that uh, if they are correct in their position about the recognition of these SGJ judgments, mm. um, so that the English court is required to recognise those judgments and therefore treat the appointments of the Guaido board of the BCB, BCV as having been quashed, mm. um, then then we lose in in London, um, and that that would be a complete answer. So so the other side want to to push this point to say that um, these judgments ought to be recognised because in light of changed political circumstances, um, it's no longer inconsistent with the one voice doctrine for them to be um, recognised in England. Very interesting. Um, well, I, I mean, I think this I mean, this case is obviously novel, but I think it's going to establish some very crucial precedent for a lot of changing governments that we see around the world. So I'm interested to see where it, where it lands after all the up and down in, in the court system. Um, Thank you both. I don't know if you have any final thoughts, but I I think we've covered the extremely complex issue, um, and I'm excited to see what our our listeners have to say. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Manuel. Thanks so much. Great pleasure. All right, Jan, have you heard of the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Services in the UK? I haven't. What's uh, what's it all about? So it's this organization for employees and employers in England, Scotland and Wales. And they basically give advice um, on employment law, HR processes Mm -hmm. and good practices at work. But they also provide dispute resolution services to help resolve disputes between um, employers and employees. And this came to my attention specifically through their services um, because they're enlisting this consultation to have a new draft code of practice for handling working uh, flexible working requests, mm-hmm. which is a direct follow-up of the government's consultation on flexible working 
um, th- that is in support of a new bill that will be proposed, that is being proposed, and will probably go into effect in whatever form it takes mm-hmm. in 2024. Right. And what this all leads me to is what we talked about in the introduction, which is that it's no longer flexible and it's no longer working from home. Uh, and and we see this not only at work, but also, you know, tribunals are mm. making in-person hearings are now mm-hmm. kind of becoming more of a default. Um, I, for one, have been told in several arbitrations that we're going to have an in-person hearing. So I wanted to know and like talk about you and your experience and what you've heard on boots on the ground. Uh, are people able to work from home anymore? Yeah, no, I, I, actually, I, I was going to say I have the same same impression from you know hearing from friends and colleagues uh, lately. I think I think everyone, if if given the choice, everyone opts out uh, for mm. a, for an in person hearing. That's a that's a no brainer. Um, the question is, um, have we forgot about um, the perks of the pandemic? You know, right. saving costs, <laughs> saving costs, and not flying everywhere in person. I I don't know. I I think there's a, I can feel there's a push for to get everyone in the office uh, more, and I think this is a slight transition both from so uh, employees and employers. I think employees are more in the office in general in in person because of the undeniable um, advantages. If you're a junior, you want to be, you want to learn by osmosis. You want to be, right. uh, where the action is. You want to have a m- in-person meeting, but then it's another thing to have the option, the option to go into the office. And another, and another thing is to be mandated to, you know, go exactly and to the office. I think, that's, I think that's, that's subtle, point. yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, such a, subtle point but it makes a lot of difference i think for all for parents who are uh, who are both say working it's it's that added piece of admin that you have to specify which day uh, yes. or, or ask for permission i don't know if uh, maybe not not all uh, employers um, are aware of of that but it makes a lot of difference and it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts because there might be some competition among law firms. If we're talking about law firms, law firms in particular, uh, if there's sort of competition for for talent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've touched on a, a host of things there. First of all, it's the internal admin of HR having to deal with mm. these types of things, but also the individual who's having to change what they've been used to for the past three years as far as getting childcare, in, in your case, in the case of many others, or also just having your work set up and and what mm. you're what you're going to be required to go into the office. Um and that's kind of what this bill intends to do because as you said it's it's now going to be mandated and now it's going mm. to be office policy. So what can you do? And before and I don't think even think we knew this cuz mm. lawyers don't feel that they have an option. But you can make a request, but you can only make one request every year according to the UK mm. employment laws. You can make one request and that request can be I want to change the hours that I work in my contract. Um, or mm-hmm. to the point of how many uh, vacation days I use, or in, mm-hmm. in the case of flexible working, how many days you can work from home. Um, so it's quite, it's not a lot, right? One request mm-hmm. in, in a year's time. So they're going to increase that. But then also, what do you do? What do you do? Or what can you do when your request is refused? Um, which I think some people, especially if you're thinking about a lot mm-hmm. of people dealing with 
the mental health stresses that came out mm. a lot during the COVID time, whether that is something that employers need to be concerned about or whether they need to take into consideration when they decide to reject an employee's request. Right. Um, um, and Sorry, and the request that's that's for changing your employment contract effectively. Uh, yeah, that's how hours. it comes. Yeah, because Don't, if it does get... Because right now, I mean, it, it wasn't in anyone's mm, contract, this yeah. flexible working. Um, yeah. So if it goes back to what your original contract was, you're going to have to start yeah. making requests based on on that right. contract. Um, so they the um, so the government had this consultation, and as part of the cons- consultation, they discussed issues uh, making the right to request flexible working a day one, a, a make it a, a right uh, mm. to request that refusing flexible working requests, consulting with employees about their requests, a more responsive process for making and administering requests, which is what you talked about. Uh, employment protections, requesting temporary arrangements and informal flexibility. Um, and so these are the, all of the things that are being considered as to what the government's going to do to protect employees moving forward. Right, right, right. So so it's the, the new bill is in favor of uh, or giving more rights to employers. Yeah, I think the question employees, will be sorry. how far it will go. Right. I think, um, yeah, the rights are to the employees, definitely, right. Um, right. to protect right. them. And I, I think we've all... We've all now been working under these operations of flexible working for several years now, and mm. I think everyone realizes it can work. Um, mm. And whether there's a justification for a firm to mandate, I mean, mm. we're not we're not like different companies where um, you need open plan in order to like thrash out ideas. We're kind of like an individualistic career um, right. where we like sit where we sit and draft and sit in the holes for days on end. Um, so it, it'll be interesting what the justification is or whether firms even give a justification for mandating it other than let's go back to normal. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, normal's now what's normal is um, more more flexible work hours. Um, right. And it, it in many cases, it means that you you work more because you, you no no, no uh, less commuting. Uh, I think I think that was the point Sadia made once. I think in in an earlier episode, because of flexible working hours, she works more. But I think I think some old school employers that I know they just want to go go back to normal. I yeah. don't know how. I, I I would love to have data behind this. I would love to have some, uh, a study with long enough hard data. I, is, do we have it? Some I heard I heard about these, but they, you know, what do they say? Are 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 we more productive? I, I've seen. Uh, headlines of several studies uh, if yeah. employees are more more productive now or less or how how to measure it yeah i don't i think um i the studies that i've seen are just mm. from like the guardian and, and right. the bbc so they're not necessarily <laughs> what we want to be citing on this podcast but i i know that um they what were they saying in this one study uh it was basically just that they uh, there was a lot of, it was basically comparing the UK to other mm. countries and saying that the UK actually had more flexible working days mm. currently than other countries. So we went mm-hmm. from being perceived as one of the hardest working mm. European mm-hmm. back in the day, European countries to being one with the most flexible working policies. Um, right. So the, the question is like how that came about and whether there's any method behind that madness, mm. but it appears that it's not going that way. I don't know if there's any data as far as pr- productivity or, wh- or how that can even be measured. 
but um i do yeah i i do know that it does work and the the only thing that i know about our type of work is that and i and i knew this before before COVID and everything but Mm. we have deliverables and you either produce or you don't produce so i you know if you're if they're saying oh you're not working from home because you're not productive well you'll know i mean you'll see my hours (laughs) and you'll see the product that i've produced in those hours you can tell me yeah. Uh, so it could be more, it, it doesn't need to be mandated, but it could be a slap on the wrist if you're violating the flexible working policy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you, you mentioned something about dispute res- about arbitration. So so now, you know, when you're working for a, for a disputes law firm, you can actually uh, do arbitration against you within, uh, arbitration within arbitration. Is that, <laughs> yeah, is that, exactly. is that something like... Well, you wouldn't do it in your firm. You would you would go through these kind of like ACAS is the organization right. that I was looking at. And it's basically um, that they will provide a neutral third party to arbitrate the these types of employment disputes. And it can be individual arbitration, whether you're talking about flexible working or unfair dismissal, for example, mm. between the employer and employee. But right. it could also be collective arbitration. So if okay. there's any firm that says, hold on, what you guys are mandating is, you know, kind of... First, maybe it violates the UK bill that's going to be put forward. Right. And you can have the arbitrator decide. Um, and it says hearings normally last about a half a day. So, you know, very, okay. very intense. And after the hearing, the arbitrator will make a decision in writing uh, called an award, they called it. So um, okay. I guess okay. it would just be an ad hoc employment case. But um, they also have mediation as well. So there's uh, there's opportunities out here. Query whether people want to bring their firm into arbitration. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, let, let's let's definitely watch the uh, the bill in what form and whether it, it goes forward. But what I'm seeing around around me is that everyone's really happy with flexibility and what it offers, and mm. at the same time, everyone agrees that it's much better to work as a team in person when it's needed in the, the the core hours and not not to mention not to mention in-person hearings um, arbitration hearings so i'm really looking forward to seeing how how this falls out this uh these two forces uh yeah. from from top down to get people back in more or to <clears throat> to mandate people and then people uh resisting yeah, exactly. Let's see if they can resist or they have the collective bargaining power to resist, but I think it'll be interesting. I think I I my, if I if I was a betting man yeah. and and I'm not because I typically lose, um I think that people are going to be in 5 days a week next right. year. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Well, if if you're listening to this and you don't like this um <laughs> idea at all, well there there are Brian's just mentioned a few tools hopefully uh, available to you soon uh, uh depending on whether the bill uh, can you remind the listeners the name of the bill it is the no i cannot because i just clicked off <laughs> <laughs> employment it's the employment relations flexible working bill it's called oh great great <laughs> um thank you so much brian uh, i've i've really enjoyed being on the episode as a backup co-host well we're happy to have you Jan. thanks for filling in and we look forward to having you in some further episodes great looking forward to it too All right, take care, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.